0: Users who can handle the truth. And now, here's your host, Gene Steinberg. This week on the Tech Night Out Live, we'll be featuring John Martellero of the Mac Observer. We'll also hear from Dennis Miller, and it's not that Dennis Miller. It's a guy who has a company called Snafu and an app that will help you to prevent getting ripped off the next time you buy a car. How about that? We'll also hear from Joe Wilcox of Beta News, all this and more on the Tech Night How Live.
1: Yeah!
0: Now, John Martellaro of the Mac Observer was letting me in on a secret that I'll tell you people about. You were saying that Brian Chaffin
2: of the Mac Observer does a killer imitation of Steve Ballmer of Microsoft? He does. Every morning we have a Skype conference call, the TMO team, and every once in a while he'll Uh, launch off onto an imitation of Steve Ballmer talking about something that, you know, is in the news. And it puts us all on the floor. He's got Steve Ballmer down, the nuances. He adds a little bit of, you know, embellishment of the most notable features of Steve Ballmer's voice. And so it's even funnier when you hear him do it in person. We need an impersonator
0: of tech industry figures. Now, of course, back on Saturday Night Live, I remember one skit where they had somebody who said he was Steve Jobs. Now, it didn't sound like Steve Jobs or look like Steve Jobs, but the shtick was every time they introduced a new gadget, oh, here's the latest iPod, which is the era in which they were talking, now we've got the super-duper version. Oh, wait a minute, now we have a newer version than that. And that was the joke, that every time they started talking about a new version, he came up with another version.
2: So here's an idea for some inventive person out there. Start a podcast or a YouTube channel and start doing impersonations of all these characters like uh, Tim Cook with the Southern Drawl and uh, even, uh, you know, Steve Jobs in Memoriam. And see, who else could we do? Those guys at Rim Blackberry would be funny. The key is Uh, that they have
0: to have a distinctive characteristic to their voice. If it's just a generic voice, it doesn't make a difference. The best impersonations are always of performers who have something really distinctive about them like a jerry lewis we know this is jerry lewis because he has that lady (laughs) well not the way you do it because no, i don't do a very good one right i think tim cook would be an ideal person but i was thinking here in recent appearances tim cook has basically said nothing oh no 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 you have to speak cook code oh cook code you have to speak i was thinking better though of having him imitate the late Al Kelly. Now, he's a comedian who used to go on TV, an old vaudeville comedian, then he'd go on TV, and his shtick would be that he would come on there, they'd introduce him as a professor or something. And he'd start talking, and he'd start out sensibly enough, and after a couple of sentences, you'd realize he was speaking gibberish. <laughs> so I was thinking, taking the Tim Cook voice... And merging it with a guy who speaks gibberish because if you parse Tim Cook's words, he never says anything. He just repeats a bunch of Apple mantras. Uh, well, and all you have to do is maybe just take the sentences and the phrases and mix and match them, and you figure out what he's doing. So I read all these stories last week about Tim Cook before the All Things D conference, D11, I think they called it. And I thought, he didn't say anything new, uh, he just rephrased yes, he everything.
2: Did. Yes, he did. Yes, what did he did. do? What did you say that was new? Well, first of all, here at the Mac Observer, we have developed this theory called Cook Code, capital C, capital C. And what you have to do is you have to be able to listen to what he says and put it in the context of Apple. But you have to be an experienced Apple observer. And this is where some of the observers failed because they were sitting there waiting for Tim Cook to announce a new product to lay out a grandiose vision, to cough up Apple's secrets and product plans. They didn't get any of that. They got attention deficit disorder, went off and pounded on the keyboard about how he didn't say anything. But if you listen to Tim Cook very carefully, you can read between the lines and put it into context of Apple's vision and Apple's philosophy.
0: Well, you see, what I got out of it is, They're maybe getting closer to doing something in the TV space because the word interest has become a grand vision. Oh, yes. Okay, so maybe there is some movement there. So there's a very subtle change in the message, although in the end, he's not telling you about a new product. And only an idiot would think he would unless Apple has a special
2: event. He did tell us about the new product. I I wrote an article that got a lot of attention. It's called, uh, It's Okay, Mr. Cook, Apple Customers Can Also Dream. And in the all things digital presentation, this in the question and answer session, this distinguished and intelligent fellow—I mean, he, you know, he's very erudite—and I think he was wearing glasses—and he very calmly and intelligently came up to the microphone and said, "Mr. Cook." Why won't you let us dream? And what he was referring to was all the flash and trash that Google's been throwing out, you know, Google Glass. And he mentioned aerial balloons that provide Wi-Fi to locations, uh, optic fiber into the cities that makes it look like, you know, they're going after the cable companies, which makes you think about the grand specter of Google's visions and so on about the future. And Mr. Cook very calmly, and you know, as Cook speak, Cook code, came back and, and mentioned that we've released products when they're right, which sounds kind of distant and invasive. But you had, got to understand that that's his way of saying that Apple brings something special to their products. There's nothing new about that. Yeah, but there isn't something new about it. But what's new about it is that people keep forgetting that. People get into this syndrome where if Tim Cook doesn't say something exciting the way they want him to say it, he's an idiot. All right. So they're interested in wearable products. All right. But, but, but not a toy or a gadget. For the wearable computing, it's going to be something that you didn't realize you needed it until it came out. Apple ships the dream when the product ships, they don't throw out stuff in conferences and presentations for the sake of looking cool or divulging apple product plans or looking like you have a grand vision the vision is the product and the vision ships when the product ships and that's the point where you go oh yes i'm going down to the apple store to get one of those we understand what they do they do it
0: when it's ready but they will still look for hints and tips in his language now Saying you're interested in wearables means there's some direction there, but they won't tell you what it is. Although I thought in passing, he says, well, he denigrates Google Glass and says, I wear glasses because I have to. And I thought, Mr. Cook, with all your money, you can get LASIK and you can get contact lenses. Why do you have to wear glasses? But that's just my opinion. But seriously speaking, yes, you could see where Apple has a direction. You can see, for example, where Apple hinted or he hinted There may be a larger iPhone because he says, well, right now there are problems with it. And he talks about the technology and about the screen brightness and longevity and battery life, color quality and things like that, Mm -hmm. saying Mm -hmm. these are impediments. But once he speaks of the impediments, he's telling you, you know, if we think there's a viable reason to have a larger screen iPhone and we can resolve
2: these issues with picture quality that impact the larger screens, We'll do it. In a way, that's also cook code because he's suggesting a couple things. One, there's massive disarray in the Android community where you have 600 manufacturers making thousands of different products. And when you go to market with an Android app, you've got to deal with all this different hardware and screen sizes. Uh, Developers love iOS because they have a fixed number of displays and predictable platform and they can make money and they can deploy everywhere. There is some constraint on Apple on proliferation of screen sizes because of the way iOS works. So there is that constraint. The other, the other issue is, and this is really subtle, what Tim Cook was referring to there was there's this subjective response that you can't quite put your finger on. You know, you, you look at your iPhone and you don't really n- remember what the resolution is, and you, don't, you can't really tell anybody what the color temperature of the display is in Kelvin. But you look at your phone and you go, I like that. I don't know why. It's got this this beautiful feel to it. And then you look at another phone and you go, I don't know what it is about that, but I don't like it. So there is this subtle design aspect. That goes into it it's almost the, like the, intangibles but
0: before the, the, this show becomes intangible <laughs> john mortellaro of the mac observer he likes that joining us i'm gene Steinberger in the tech night out live folks you'll want to hear this no matter what size your business people don't take you seriously unless you have a professional looking website you can empower your business with a stunning online presence, and it's free. Join over 30 million people who have built their websites with Wix. Once again, it's completely free. It requires absolutely no design or coding skills. Want to know more? Check out Wix.com. That's W-I-X dot
3: of buying gold and silver. Again, the global elite have plans for your money, and it doesn't include you. So call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130. And I will send you a booklet with 10 reasons why gold and silver could be right for you. Again, don't get caught with money in your account when the next bank bailout hits. Call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130.
4: A natural disaster strikes and out goes your power. You risk losing stored food in electric freezers and refrigerators. Your options, lose all that expensive food and medication, fire up a noisy gasoline-powered generator, or switch now to a propane or natural gas-powered refrigerator from Ben's Discount Supply. Ben'sDiscountSupply.com has a complete line of propane-powered refrigerators, freezers in sizes ranging from a small camper cooler size up to a whopping 21-cubic-foot refrigerator freezer, or a 22-cubic-foot deep freezer, in stock and ready to ship anywhere. BenzDiscountSupply.com also stocks a full line of solar-powered appliances to get you completely off the grid. Check out BenzDiscountSupply.com or call 800-771-7702. That's 800-771-7702. Or click BenzDiscountSupply.com for camping, home, or bug-out location. Bank on BenzDiscountSupply.com. How's your pH today? Are you acidic? How alkaline is your blood and body? What
5: is the pH of the water you drink? We are AlkaVision, and we have the answers. Drinking pure, high alkaline water is one of the most important factors in maintaining vibrant health and high energy, because bacteria and viruses cannot survive in an alkaline high pH environment. If your drinking water isn't at a pH level of 8 or higher, boost it with AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops. Our unique formula will alkalize your water, ridding your body of harmful toxins and acid, and help regain energy and health. Simply add 10 drops of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops to help your body rid itself of acidic waste, increase oxygen, and raise the pH of your body to optimal levels. Order your bottle of AlkaVision Plasma pH Drops for only $29.95 at AlkaVision.com, spelled A-L-K-A-Vision.com, or call 800-518-7615, 800-518-7615. Alkalize your body, supercharge your health at AlkaVision.com.
0: Folks, I am not going to do an imitation of Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm not going to do an imitation of Jerry Lewis or Dean Martin or anybody else. Sometimes I do an imitation of Gene Steinberg. Sometimes well, sometimes not so well. I will not even imitate John Martellaro. But we're trying to parse what he calls Cook Code, which is during a session of the All Things D conference, Did he tell us anything or just repeat the Apple mantra that we've got great products and we've got visions, we've got this, that, and the other thing, and maybe we'll announce something sometime. We know when the next announcement's going to come. In fact, when you listen to the show, those announcements may have been made. All right, so we look into things that Apple will say, but people are still looking for product hints. Just as, for example, he will denigrate or Apple will denigrate a product and then come out with their own answer, to that so-called defective product a few months later. And I go back to, for example, when in, what, 2005, they were asked about a cheap Mac. Actually, it was late 2004. And the people at Apple say, we're not going to do cheap junk. And early in 2005, they come out with a Mac Mini, an inexpensive Mac, but not cheap junk. So it's what they consider. Just for example, people were talking about a lower-cost iPhone, although this recent action by the international trade commission may hasten that you think the point being that he will drop hints we're not going to dismiss that when he says he's not going to dismiss it you think well somewhere along the line they're going to do something but we don't know
2: when there's tremendous pressure on journalists to write and write every day so um, they're looking for any morsel that tim cook throws out there so that they can create a sensational headline and when you don't get that you're a little bit frustrated, and you have nothing to fall back on. You don't understand cook code. Maybe you're new to the Apple world. You know, I've been writing about Apple uh, since 1998 on the internet, and I was doing product reviews of the Apple II back in 1980. Started a magazine called Peeling Side you know we, we had non disclosures and visits to Cupertino on the magazine in 1980 to see the Apple II, uh the little one uh what was it called the little portable guy so you know you got to have some experience in the industry Apple 2 see when Mr Cook doesn't say anything explicit you, it's easy to get frustrated we were talking before the break about the subjective view of the of the iPhone display and how it just has that magical look and and it has those parameters that 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 you like. The the problem is is that there are some people who seem to be kind of immune to that. You know, you you can hold a, a, a Samsung Galaxy Note or an S four next to an iPhone. If you don't spend a lot of time with it, maybe you think the display is just as good for some reason by some clever combination of the colors and and the viewing angle and the color saturation and so on. So there are people who are casually immune to that syndrome and they love their android device but gee apple sold a couple hundred million iphones and they know what they're doing when it comes to product design and making it have that special feel in your hand back to mr cook back to mr
0: cook okay i think more about what mr cook said would lead us to what we should expect at WWDC, the Apple Worldwide Developers Conference, starting at June 10th. And understand, this show will be heard on June 8th. By the time many of you hear this show, whatever we say, suggest, or envision
2: will be true or not so true. Well, for one thing, we're not going to see a major product announcement at WWDC like an iBand or an iWatch. One of us noticed that Mr. Cook mentioned during the All Things D conference several times about how he had this band on his wrist, and nobody picked up on that. And so we're suspecting it could be something like an iBand instead of an iWatch. But you won't see that announcement, and, and it's too soon for the MacBook Pro's. Maybe we'll see some Mac announcements, certainly not iPhone or a new product category. Those deserve their own event. That will be one of those conferences in the town hall where, you know, the journalists are invited and there's a big event. But but one of the things that Apple likes to do, and we have to remember this every WWDC, is that Apple likes to excite the developers Uh, about the product that it's going to put in the hands of customers so that developers get excited about the business opportunities. And so when you say, oh, there's never going to be any hardware announced at WWDC, that's not completely true. Peter Cohen is pretty sure that there'll be some MacBook Airs uh, announced, a new one, and I think that's probably right. Uh, It's probably time to say something about the new Mac Pro And if that's properly designed, it could get people really worked up about some serious computational power on the desktop for professionals, for video people and scientists. So there's room there to get the developers excited about what the customers are going to be drooling over. So uh, I think that's going to happen, and of course, as we know, there's going to be you know there's some wonderful demos of the flattened iOS by flattened. we mean devoid of the con- conventional skeuomorphism, uh, that special kind of design that you know makes you think you're looking at a physical object like torn paper on a notepad or or the the rings of a notebook and so on that's that's going to go away. People
0: are starting to say that having the image of torn paper is a rip-off. <laughs> I was waiting for the drum roll, but... Uh, you have it. the bada-bing. Bada-bing. Okay, but seriously speaking here. Okay, so there are now reports that, for example, supplies of MacBook Airs are diminishing in the supply chain. If that's the mm-hmm. case, maybe Apple will revise that. There is a new Intel chipset called Haswell that's starting to well, appear on some PCs. Right. So yes. it's possible Apple can do simple chip swaps. They don't have to redesign anything extensively. Just say, hey, we got these new chips and their new MacBook or MacBook Pro refreshes. I haven't refreshes.
2: seen anything about a Retina MacBook Air, though. I think that's still in the future because uh, the MacBook Air is now Apple's entry-level product, and I don't think Apple can ship a low-end product yet with the Retina display. I could be wrong. It's still we'll so too expensive.
0: So maybe the prediction is here, the MacBook Air as it exists, would be modified slightly. I guess that can take it to the current MacBook Pro with retina display. Although one person unaccountably said the regular MacBook Pro without the retina display would not get the update. So Apple is in a subtle fashion or not so subtle fashion pushing people towards the retina display. But for a lot of people, yes, it looks nicer, but we're talking about cost factors. And it doesn't cost Apple that much to redesign their product with a
2: faster chip. Well, that's traditional. That's something that Apple has always done. I don't question that. But what I question, or what I wonder about, is how long the regular MacBook Pro with an optical drive is going to survive. Apple's made that concession for certain classes of people, You know, people who are in remote locations, overseas, on ships, professionals who need the, the DVD burn capability and so on. And I wonder how long that's going to last. You know, Apple's made that concession for a while now, but we know from history that, that Apple Will eventually eliminate that.
0: Before we are eliminated, John martillero of the Mac Observer joins us. I'm Gene Steinberger in the Tech Night Out Live.
7: The GCN Radio Network, providing the world with hard hitting talk radio. GCN.
8: Great talk radio starts here. That's R-O-C-K-O-I-D-S dot com.
9: Are you still a traditional smoker?
11: I
12: have bought a few bottles of heart and body extract and have to say that it it certainly does work.
5: That's what Jack from Michigan had to say after his experience with heart pain and what he did to treat it with heart and body extract.
12: I actually had a huge heart flutter. I was also having some edema around my ankles and very worrisome clot in my uh, right leg that would happen from time to time while I was trying to sleep.
5: Heart and body extract is all natural with no negative side effects. It will help repair or correct past problems associated with the heart and body circulation.
12: After my second bottle of heart and body extract, all problems are now gone.
5: Order at HBExtract.com or call 866-295-5305.
12: I ordered a third bottle of Heart and Body Extract for maintenance as I want to keep everything working.
5: Order Heart and Body Extract at 866-295-5305 or hbextract.com. Heart and Body Extract, for a long and healthy life.
13: You're listening to the Tech Night Owl live with Gene Steinberg. You never know what's going to happen next.
0: So will Apple finally get rid of the models that have built-in optical drives? I saw a published report about the Mac Pro, suggesting something that was almost non-expandable, wouldn't have an optical drive internally, We rely on Thunderbolt for internal expansion, but still have the Intel Xeon server-grade chips for highest rendering, maybe have two graphics chips to put up the four monitors on the computer. But that, to me, seems like something that the content creators will scream about. They want to be able to have their extra internal drives. They want to be able to have their peripheral cards, even Uh though most people won't ever use them.
2: I'm not hung up on internal uh, SAT expansion. I, I read that Intel's coming out with Thunderbolt 2 later this year, and having an expansion chassis is the right way to go. I wrote an article earlier this year about um, a fellow in Toronto uh, who had a wonderful artist concept, of, and even engineering concept to some details about a, about a Mac Mac. Pro, where he had an expansion chassis that was beautifully matched to the base unit. And so what you'd do is you'd stack the expansion chassis on the front if you wanted to have one.
0: I got yeah. an idea. Okay. Yeah. Let me tell you. So what you do is you sell the Mac Pro and an optional expansion chassis that clips on. So you exactly. can take it with you. If you want to take one computer with all your stuff, you don't want to carry a lot of things, you are able to clip on rather substantially the expansion chassis. And so it has your extra drives. It has your extra peripheral cards, whatever they are. But if you don't need that, you don't need that expansion. You don't have to buy it with that extra box. You can buy the core box, which still has the same rendering power, the same RAM options, two graphics chips, whatever.
2: Well, yeah, that's the exact, exactly the right viewpoints, uh, Gene. Uh, I saw an article the other day about how we don't really need a Mac Pro because the iMac... It, with an i7 is is uh for is adequate for technical professionals the problem is, is heat you know i have to run a uh, a little app to control the fans it's called smc fan control so that my imac doesn't overheat in the sure. summertime in my office uh what we want in a mac pro is absolute power. We want no concessions. We want fans, you know, liquid hydrogen or liquid helium if need be. You know, we want the fastest possible processor. And if the thing sits there and radiates in the infrared, that's just fine. We want to be able to upgrade the memory. We want to be able to have the fastest graphic processors and maybe additional ones. And 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 that will make us very happy. Expansion chassis, you know, that's not quite such a big deal. You know, internal expansion isn't isn't that big a deal. So that's what we want. We want a machine that we can put our own display on that w- that will drive multiple displays nicely. We want a we want Mountain Lion to be able to handle all these multiple displays beautifully. Severe graphics power, severe computational power, beautiful looks. Booting from an internal SSD, maybe a 768 internal SSD, but certainly a 256 option for for people who are, you know, watching their money. And uh, expandable memory. And, uh, you know, we'll start off with 32 gigabytes of RAM in that machine, and we will be off and running. So in
0: that sense, then, having a matching expansion chassis makes sense. Yeah. It does yeah. make perfect sense because this way... You have the choice of making that computer your own. If you're never going to need the expansion chassis, you don't buy it. There's no reason to have it. You just use the core computer, which looks and works fine. If you need it, you buy it. There you go. We'll have to see where that turns out, how that turns out to be. So the Mac Pro, do you expect that they will announce the Mac Pro at WWDC or just leave it alone? The reason I ask that is that the Intel chips, the latest E-series, Ivy Bridge chips or whatever they're using right now won't ship until September.
2: Uh, I'd have to check on that. I wrote an article earlier in the year about the chip I think it was going to be used and it was supposed to ship in the second half of uh, 2013. And last year, Tim Cook said later in 2013. So I'm sorry, but I forget the uh, exact Intel chip that I think Apple's going to be using, but I think it's going to be available early in the second half of of 2013. And so I wouldn't be surprised if Tim Cook made an announcement to fulfill his promise from last year. But the product itself may not actually ship until September.
0: What could happen also is sometimes Apple makes a deal with Intel. They did in the past get early grabs on a chip, especially with a Mac Pro where they don't need as many and say, look, we'll ship this in August, but announce it in June. It'll ship, say, late July, early August. That could happen. Sure. And is that going to be the one they make in the USA?
2: I don't know. I haven't heard any comments about that one way or the other. One more thing I wanted to mention was is that uh, there is this meme, this idea floating around in the technical, scientific, advanced computation, video editing community that Apple needs a flagship, fast Mac to make us. As was mentioned before, dream a little bit. You know, General Motors doesn't sell a lot of Corvettes every year, but they build a product that people drool over. Uh, Lots of companies race special cars because they learn a lot from racing and those supercars that they race trickles down into their regular product line. So we can't say that, well, our, Apple wouldn't sell very many of these Mac Pros or they're not going to make a whole lot of money on it. In this case, it's the idea is not to make a whole lot of money. The idea is to have something very special and wonderful and cool that people can talk about and dream about and the, and people who really need the very, very best and the most computational power can get their hands on You know, if your boss tells you, you know, you've got $10,000 to spend on a computational device for the lab, you know, you know what to go buy. But if Apple markets it right and positions it right, it doesn't have to be something like an iPhone where you sell tens or hundreds of millions of it. It just has to be something that's flagship, sets the mark, and proves to the rest of the world that Apple still knows how to build their very best and fastest super desktop computers. Because if you stop making them and you stop testing yourself and you stop pushing the limits, people call into question your technical expertise. You're just making ho-hum stuff for ho-hum consumers. And that's not where you want to be as a company like Apple.
0: Okay. So we know there's going to be a new iOS and OS 10 because Apple has said so already. We're making predictions here about the flatter interface, especially of iOS 7. Part of that is there's a new WWDC app that was released ahead of the event, and it has a somewhat flatter look to it. So some are suggesting that's what it's going to be, but Apple could still pull out a few tricks.
2: Yeah, um, I expect it to be fairly substantial, and I expect there to be a lot of fuss about it um, in the keynote. Uh, One of the things that's happened in the last, uh, especially the last year, is is that Android, Google's mobile operating system, has been forced to, by litigation, come up with some imaginative workarounds. Uh, For example, Apple has a patent on the scroll bounce. Um, you think that's pretty cool until you look at, say, a Galaxy Note or, a, or a Galaxy S4 and you see the blue fire edge. And the stronger you push on the edge, the fierier the blue edge gets until you let go and the fire goes away. And you think, wow, that's darn cool. I wish Apple had thought of that. So Android has, especially the 4, 4.x, you know, Jelly Bean, has come a long, long way, and it looks very technical, and it's very geeky. Now, yeah, it goes overboard, and Samsung throws a lot of features at us. Samsung's trying to protect itself uh, for intellectual property by coming up with all these features, throwing out everything in the sticks, patenting everything they can because they're in fierce competition. And as a result um, of this energy in in Android and, and Samsung's marketing, um ios 6 is looking a little bit um dated doesn't so i expect to see something really exciting and, and a new look is what we're all hankering for
0: i'll tell you what we're hankering for this special announcement ladies and gentlemen we have john martellaro of the mac observer i'm gene Steinberger in the tech night out live <laughs>
12: Call now at 800-346-6829 to learn how I can help you. You know your IRS debt will not go away by itself, but you don't have to live in fear anymore. New changes to IRS policies will help more people than ever before eliminate their debts once and for all. There's no need for you to suffer another day with IRS debt. Call 800-346-6829. I can help you eliminate wage and bank levies, release tax liens, and negotiate a settlement with the IRS that will put your tax nightmare behind you forever. Call 800-34-NO-TAX or go to my website, TaxHelpOnline.com. That's TaxHelpOnline.com.
15: It's time to get real.
14: It's time to prepare.
15: Economic collapse. Social unrest. Natural disasters. Government takeover. UN takeover. Are you ready? 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 Get ready at the Social Prepper Trade Show in Dalton, Georgia, June 6th, 7th, and 8th. Three massive days to learn self-reliance and emergency preparedness. Exhibitors ranging from survival, solar, power, food protection, guns, ammo, disaster preparation products, hunting, and much more. Seminars by Dr. Wallach, Robert Henry, Raymond Blake Hogshead, Trish Deer, Sandy Hall, Rick Austin, Survivor Jane, and more of our nation's experts on survival and preparedness. Don't miss the Social Prepper Prepper Trade Show. June 6th through 8th, Dalton, Georgia. For discount tickets, prize raffle and info, go to socialprepper.com. Enter code GCN for 50% online ticket discount purchase. The
13: Social Prepper Trade Show.
15: Presented in part by GCN.
13: What are you listening to? The Tech Night Isle Live with Gene Steinberg. What's going to happen next? You never know.
0: So there you go, predicting all sorts of great things from Apple with regard to iOS 7, OS 10.9. At the Worldwide Developers Conference, we'll keep the speculation at a minimum. Maybe new MacBook Air, maybe some MacBook Pros with Retina Displays, new models. Maybe we'll hear about the Mac Pro. We'll have to see at the Worldwide Developers Conference with John Martellaro. I'm Gabby Hayes. (laughs) With John Martellaro of the Mac Observer, I was starting to kind of turn my words to gibberish. And then I remember a story about a late character actor who used to be in Westerns all the time by the name of George Gabby Hayes. And he had the voice of somebody who spoke without teeth in his mouth because he would always remove his false teeth before he'd act. But that's in the old days. Now, of course, he'd get dental implants if he were alive today. John, let's move to another topic here. One where we're not going to be proven wrong very quickly, because anything we say about WWDC and future Apple products, people will know by the time they hear this show. Magazines on the iPad. Now, I remember when Rupert Murdoch came out with this new publication on the iPad, going to signal this whole generation where publishers would put their content on the iPad. Because they can't make money from print magazines anymore. And that
2: publication wasn't very good and didn't last very long. Well, I don't agree that it's not possible to make money on print magazines. I think some of that is hype. Some of it is uh, an attempt to avoid being left behind. I wrote an article the other day called The State of Magazines on the iPad, a giant mess. And I did a little bit of research before I wrote the article. And what I discovered was uh, from some very, um, uh, let's see, what's the word I'm looking for? So I was doing some research for the article on magazine industry. And I found some authoritative articles from people in the industry who pointed out that print magazines are still doing fairly well, that the major publishers, the big ones, Condé Nast and others, are generating about 10% of their revenue from digital subscriptions, that uh, despite the popularity of the iPad, um, paper magazines are still doing quite well. I mean, if you walk into a Barnes & Noble, you'll see a giant rack that covers the entire wall of hundreds of different magazines, They haven't dried up up and blown away yet. And the other problem is is that different publishers have different levels of technical expertise, uh, different amounts of money to spend, and so they experiment on the iPad in different ways. And so you have different representations of the magazine. I just got an email from one of the publishers today who said they've kind of given up um, on magazine format subscription. They're going to go to a book type of format for their magazine because that gives them more technical freedom in the in the presentation of information. Other companies are hung up on the visual presentation of it, and then you get locked into, you know, trying to put a PDF with pretty pictures and small print on a screen on the iPad and then you can't read it. So then you pinch Zoom and then you lose track of what's the page looks like. There's all sorts of technical issues with getting a magazine onto a 9.7-inch screen and making money doing it. And as a result, there's been a lot of splintering in the industry. And so whether you're reading a magazine and newsstand on the iPad, Apple's newsstand, or you're using Xenio or you're using the Kindle app to go to Amazon, your magazines are available in different ways. They're bought in different ways. They're presented in different ways. The kinds of gesture you use are different uh it is really kind of a mess right now
0: okay so is there a solution here is it just the interface or what about the content what about making the magazine interesting because that was the criticism voiced against rupert murdoch's publication
2: it was just plain boring right right um with the advent of the internet and internet news people have found sources for the news that they want and much of it is free. And so what publishers have found is is that you have to have technical not technical you have to have literary and enduring and interesting content. For example, the Atlantic Monthly or Scientific American articles with serious uh, authoritative educational value. Articles on, you know, what's going on with the tourist industry uh, at Martha's Vineyard or something that Smithsonian does. Typically, Smithsonian is an excellent magazine uh, about our culture and times. Um, uh, Magazines like Air and Space from Smithsonian that talk about the history of aviation. Uh, Scientific American, you'll find articles on cosmology and quantum mechanics and medicine. You, know, you don't find those articles on the internet and they're worthy of being paid for i mean i subscribe to scientific american and, and and sky and telescope and aviation week and space technology to keep up on those things because they provide content that you can't get for free on the internet so that's what you have to do and you're right that's exactly why the daily failed
0: you have to come up with something that exploits the technology that makes people want to read your publication that separates them from the printed version. I prefer print. I still like printed magazines. I still like it the old fashioned way. But a lot of content works better online. Just like computing magazines, because of the nature of the beast and new products come out so quickly, and in some worlds, like the Android world, are replaced so quickly, by the time the magazine gets out two or three months later, it's obsolete. Well,
2: I, I call into question the, the size of the uh, iPad screen. You know, if you design a magazine to be on a 9.5-inch diagonal, uh, people would find it very hard to read. If you go to any magazine on the newsstand, the the magazine is roughly 12 or 13 inches diagonally, and the text is 12 inches. There's a reason for that. There's a reason... We have a hundred-year history of typesetting and magazines, and understanding of the human eye and, and how we read, and the size of print that's that's uh, handsome and easy to read in a magazine. When you take that and you compress it down to a nine-point-seven-inch iPad, you're kind of jumping through hoops. Uh, the second issue is is that Apple hasn't provided—I uh, don't think—I could be wrong—a really, really good standardized framework for. Presenting magazines. And so, as a result, every publisher uses the iOS and Cocoa Touch technologies to their own preferences based on their technical experience, how they want to present ads, um, their taste, and so on. And so, they exploit iOS in different ways. And so, you have different reading methods uh, in order to digest the content. I, I I saw Car and Driver, for example, they used to have a PDF page. And you could pinch-zoom it to, to blow it up a little bit, but that's not really a very comfortable way to read. Then they switch to the Scientific American method. You can kind of taste, sense the taste of, of John Martellaro's magazines here. Um, not exactly a People magazine expert. Um, where you swipe left and right to uh, change between articles. And then you scroll up and down to read the article. It gives you great liberty. It's like reading a book. Because as you read the article, you're swipe you're swiping up and down. It can be like a text, like a regular book. You can change the font size. You can go on as far as you need to. You can embed graphics very nicely. You're not constrained to having all of that information on a single page. The problem there is is that you're maybe tempted to go overboard with with too many options and especially scientific american you can kind of get wrapped around the axle because there's these graphics that jump out at you and you're not quite sure how to swipe and you really want to go to the next article and you end up swiping and you end up getting a graphic thrown at you so uh, i had some trouble with that uh, last week so i think they have got some tuning there there to do too it's all going to be very different in 10 years you know in 10 years we'll look back and we'll we'll laugh at how primitive the magazines were on a 9.7 inch screen and how many different ways there were to present it and um, uh, but it's going to take it's going to take some time, and I, and I don't see Apple really helping the situation by working side by side with the publishers. They're just they're just saying, "Hey, iOS is great, Cocoa Touch is great. Here, go have at it. You know, do your own thing." You know, Apple is going take,
0: to have to set up their own thing and say, "Okay." We want this to happen, but here are ways you can implement your dream. Because right now, either they're just providing a PDF version of the magazine or they are doing what they think should work, which would be you know embedding videos so it mm. confuses the content. I mean, right. when you buy a magazine you read it, you don't worry about the embedded videos. You want to read the article and maybe check back at the captions for the photographs and things like that. So you want to transfer that experience or modify that experience to the requirements of a portable device, but you still have to meet the needs of the reader, which some people forget about. John Martellaro of the Mac Observer with Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live.
7: Are you tired of searching for great talk radio? Something more important. Search no more. We are the GCN Radio Network.
16: Great news, Pure Water Lovers. Bigburkeywaterfilters.com has a special discount offer for all GCN listeners. You can't do better than a Big Berkey for economy. For only 1.7 cents a gallon, a single set of filters can last for five to ten years. There's none better than a Big Berkey for emergency preparedness as a backup water source. And you just can't beat a Big Berkey to remove dangerous chlorine, all types of fluoride, pathogenic bacteria, cysts, parasites, and unhealthy vitamins products from municipal water berkey water filter systems are even powerful enough to purify stagnant pond water for the gold standard in water filters get a big berkey at big berkey water and all gcn listeners get five percent off all ceramic filter systems for details call 1-877-99-BERKEY that's 877-99-BERKEY big berkey water filters for the love of clean water
6: Welcome back to the Tech Night Owl Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, here's Gene Steinberg.
0: So we have to see what Apple is going to do with regard to e-magazines, the next generation, fixing up all the stuff, so... Maybe we have the way that works best for people. John Martellaro of the Mac Observer joining us. So much more to talk about. I don't know where to begin, but I will anyway, because that's what I'm like. Okay. You have an article at the Mac Observer, which is how to sink a submarine, Apple or the tech giant of your choice. What, pray tell, is that about?
2: (laughs) Well, here's one of the rules. If you're an Apple publication, you have to have Apple in the headline or it's not going to be categorized properly. So I could have written How to Sync Google or How to Sync uh, Yahoo. I just picked a company name and, uh, you know, our titles have to follow certain guidelines. So that's why I had How to Sync a Submarine or Apple. It was a Memorial Day article, and I thought it fit in really well with uh, with the... uh, uh, Reverence towards uh, those who fought and died for our country in previous wars. Um, we had a big problem during World War II. Before we got into World War II, we were shipping supplies, massive supplies to Great Britain and convoys across the North Atlantic. And German submarines were raising havoc there, uh, sinking ships uh, with, with important supplies, lumber and, and fuel oil and food, that was going to Great Britain to keep them alive to hold off the Germans, because we had not yet entered the war. And as a result of that, the United States military turned to civilian scientists, statisticians, mathematicians, physicists, to try to analyze the situation based on statistics and mathematics and code-breaking. Uh, technology in order to solve this problem of uh, our convoys being decimated by the the German U-boats. And this field of endeavor became operations research. And just to give you an example, one of the things that you can show mathematically is, is if you've got a convoy of a given size, geometrically you need escort ships, you know, destroyer escorts or destroyers in the front and the sides and the back, and what they showed mathematically was is that you could increase the size of the convoy without necessarily increasing the number of escort ships, which drove the military guys crazy. I mean, the beauty of this kind of operations research and simulations and mathematical analysis is it comes up with unexpected results, which are technically sound, but fly in the face of ordinary common sense. So you go to the admiral and you say, well, you've got 48 ships in the convoy and six escorts. You can go to 72 ships and keep your escorts at six, and you'll be just as effective as holding off the U-boats. And the admiral says, what? I have more ships, but I don't need more escorts? That doesn't make sense. So it turned out to be true. So that's just one example that I found in this book called Blackett's War that describes the origin of operations research. So then I started thinking... Well, we've got the same kind of warfare going on in the high-tech industry. You've got logistics. You've got product rollouts. You've got shipping. um, You've got marketing. You've got customer perceptions that may or not be valid. Um, You've got shallow ideas that the admirals might have. For example, you might say, well, if we withhold the uh, interoperability of our software so that the competition can't work with it, then that means that somehow our product will become favored because people will not be able to use the competition's product anymore. They'll have to switch to ours. But we know that doesn't work. So I got the idea that, that it might be possible to understand and simulate all of these forces in the industry through a digital simulation. I come from a simulation background. I used to work on combat simulators. I worked on a big one called Cast Form for the United States Army, which was dismounted in infantry, if I can get that word out. Simulation of combat with tanks and, and rockets and helicopters and so on. I think it would be possible to simulate what's going on in the industry in terms of all the different relevant forces, and then start introducing changes, you know, stochastic variables and see what really is effective and it could be that some of these solutions in an operations research kind of way might be unobvious to even an experienced executive (laughs) and i thought wouldn't it be cool if a company had supercomputers that they could use not just to design hardware but to simulate the competition in the industry do an operations research on the tech industry and figure out ways to better compete, it's like sort of sort of solve the U boat problem or solve the Google Glass problem.
0: <laughs> well, Microsoft could have done that to solve the Windows 8 problem, where nobody cares.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, y- you can't ship a product these days where you're not guaranteed massive success. Isn't Apple really good at that? You know, we were talking about Tim Cook and all things digital earlier. Uh, one of the things we didn't get to was the fact that Apple doesn't ship onesies and twosies products and it doesn't cancel them right away. They ship products that people glom onto that they realize change their lives and they expect to ship, Apple expects to ship hundreds of millions of any given product. Whereas some people were saying, you know, if Google Glass gets Google into trouble, if there's too many privacy issues, you know, if it doesn't go anywhere, they can't commercialize it. They might just kill it, like they've killed a lot of other products. So uh, it's not necessarily fatal for Google in that sense, but um, in in general, it's it's fatal to spend millions and millions of dollars on a product and you're not sure that it's going to sell tens or hundred millions of of uh, copies. Now, the other day, I saw a Microsoft executive say that they'd shipped a hundred million copies of Windows eight. Now, the problem there is, is that it's you know pre install on, on a lot of PCs. Uh, And it's not something people opted for. And in many cases, I suspect people would say, gee, I wish I could rip Windows 8 out of there and put Windows 7 on. This is
0: the argument I've made about Windows 8. So they sell licenses to computer makers. But it doesn't mean those licenses have then resulted in computers being built with licensed copies of Windows 8, nor that people have purchased them. There may be 100 million sales but how many of them transferred into finished products and how many of those finished products transferred
2: to people who bought them and activated them? That's exactly right. There's a difference between selling a product by taking money for it and selling a product because people stood in line and wanted it and forked over money that that they had earned and are willing to pay for a product. That's two different interpretations of the word sell.
0: Well, Apple is kind of a hybrid, I gather, which is that when they report sales to their own dealerships, to the Apple stores online, they are sales to a retail customer. But if they're reporting sales to a third-party distributor, it is a shipment.
2: So you're exactly right, Gene. There's a big difference in the interpretation of the word sale. It's, It's one thing to take money for a product and chalk it up as a sale. It's another thing to sell a product to somebody who wants your product, takes their hard-earned money, stands in line at seven o'clock in the morning and says, I'm willing to pay for this product because I want it. That's two different interpretations of the word sales. So I don't think Microsoft's entitled to be too smug about their sales because very few of them were people standing in line for a product they really wanted.
0: if you look at some of those surveys of operating systems share online about how many people are accessing the internet. And I should put up this cautionary note first. And that is that these surveys are based on people visiting a certain number of websites that they consider part of their sampling. And that sampling could be somewhat inaccurate. Right now, Windows 8 is way, way, way behind where Windows Vista perceived as a failure was at the same point in time. Microsoft's
2: in trouble there. They're in trouble with the Surface RT. They made a big mistake there by bringing Windows 8 out at the same time they brought out Windows. By the time, At the same time, they brought out the Surface RT tablet, which wouldn't run x86 software. Uh, so that really confused the marketplace. And coming up next on the
0: show, we'll feature Dennis Miller from a company called Snafu. No, he's not the actor-comedian. He's another Dennis Miller. Before our marketplace is confused totally wrecked destroyed without reason, we have to do this break. We have John Mortalero of the Mac Observer for one more segment. I'm Gene Steinberger in the Tech Night How Live. Attack of the
8: Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a thrill a minute story you'll never forget.
11: quantitative easing, unemployment at depression levels, Europe financial system falling apart, China getting out of U.S. treasuries. At the end of 2008, the time of TARP, the national debt was at $11 trillion gold trading around $850 per ounce. Close to 2012, the national debt exceeded $16.4 trillion, gold doubled to $1,600 per ounce. The $20 trillion threshold for the national debt is inevitable. Politicians in Washington have a ferocious appetite for spending and stimulus. What's worse, a printing
18: That's 870-784-3121. Renovation Tees. Renovate your health one bag at a time. Got a simple question for you can you sell yes okay can
5: you sell the intangible if yes and you'd like to work nine to five monday through friday with no overtime no weekends if you're passionate about not closing sales but about opening relationships if you truly have a desire to serve global clients who need your advertising expertise and you're local to the twin cities and burnsville are hard-working self-driven with experience in sales marketing or advertising are personable and a whiz on the phone gcn wants to talk with you right now. GCN, the Genesis Communications Network, is one of the largest independent talk radio networks in the world, and we're hiring right now. We offer benefits and an excellent commission structure. Experience preferred, but we'll train the right person. Is that you? Submit your resume today to advertise at gcnlive.com. Again, that's advertise at gcnlive.com. Come work with the Genesis Communications Network, an equal opportunity employer.
0: John Martellaro of the Mac Observer. I'm Gene Steinberg. here in the Tech Night Out Live. Let's segue very briefly away from the Microsoft Windows 8 train wreck to another subject here. You have been exploring Android gear, and one of them is the Samsung Galaxy Note 2. This is what they call a phablet, right? This is where exactly. it's larger yes. than a smartphone, smaller than a tablet, but supposedly compiles the best Or the worst
2: of both? It has a 5.5-inch screen. Uh,
0: Oh, great if you have basketball players' fingers for navigating with one hand. Otherwise, it's a two-handed
2: device. No, I don't think so. I've handled uh, the uh, Galaxy Note 2 for a month. Uh, Samsung was kind enough to uh, send me one for evaluation. Uh, 5.5 sounds like it's a significant fraction of a 7-inch screen, but in my article, I put one next to a. Uh, Kindle Fire HD and photographed them, and it's uh, more like a phone than it is like a seven-inch tablet. Even though you think five point five is a significant fraction of seven, when you put them side by side, you go, "Oh yeah, I can see the difference." This is just a large phone. There's all sorts of advantages to a larger display like that that I discovered. Uh, you have more design freedom, and that in in turn means that you can do things on a 5.5-inch screen that you just cannot do in iOS on a 3.5-inch screen for a 4S or a 4-inch screen for an iPhone 5. It introduces design latitude for pleasant layout. And I showed screenshots of the calendar on iOS and the calendar in Android. I showed a a, a screenshot of uh, some calculators with big buttons that were easy to press. One of the problems with calculators on the iPhone is is that the buttons can be too small and you can press the wrong button. I showed a picture of, uh, of the web browser looking at the Mac observer. And when you're surfing the web, a 5.5 inch screen is just awesome. It really, it really shines and you have a lot more room on the screen. Um, a web browser on a small three and a half or four inch screen is, is doable, but it isn't just pleasant and, and awesome. Well, I think I changed my mind about, you know, a phablet. You have to figure out how to carry it. I showed a picture of how it fits in a shirt pocket, though. You know, a long time ago, we heard a story that Steve Jobs insisted that an iPhone had to fit in his shirt pocket. And so that's where the original design specs sizes of the uh, iPhone came from. But this Samsung Galaxy Note 2 fits in a regular dress shirt pocket, too. It fills it out, and there's only a little bit to spare, but it still fits.
0: Let me amplify that. The Samsung Galaxy S4 with a 5-inch screen fits in my shirt pocket. I still think it's kind of big, but I understand the point of view about the larger
2: screen display. Exactly. And so it's really a question of uh, what your needs are. If you're willing to figure out how to carry it around, some sort of oversized belt holster, or those new jeans that came out last month that have the slot uh, on the thigh, Um, or you figured out how to put it in your shirt pocket or your suit coat pocket. You're a clown, and therefore you have bigger (laughs) pockets. That's the way to do it. Yeah, yeah. If you figure out how you want to carry it, there are huge advantages to having a handheld device, which you can hold in one hand, and and, and do a lot of cool things. The, The calendar looks awesome. Uh, Netflix looks awesome. You can actually watch a movie on an airplane as opposed to, you know, a little tiny screen. And as I said in the article, you know, there's this business about Phil Schiller talking about the advantages of a phone uh, of the size of the iPhone, because you can span your thumb across it. And with a large phablet, your your thumb doesn't reach. You can't span. About a year ago. Or what, two years ago, Steve Jobs during AntennaGate was telling us, hold it different. (laughs) So, you know, Phil Schiller and Steve Jobs will come up with just the right little catchphrase to do the marketing job. But we get our hands on the product. You know, we use it. We play with it. We use it for a month. Some of that just turns out to be marketing. I like the Galaxy Note, too. Um, It was a fun product to use. Android is pleasantly geeky. I was talking about the blue fire before uh, on the edges. Um, You've got plenty of room to write and scribble. You can actually have two apps running uh, on the same screen do a better job of content creation. Or if there's something you want to monitor on the top while you're sending email at the bottom, uh, you can't do that on an iPhone.
0: I'm going to give an acid test here. I still have a Samsung Galaxy S3 that Samsung sent me. And as long as I keep it on my f- phone plan, they haven't asked for it back. That's the trick. Now, using the S4 on my phone number, I was thinking my wife still has an old Motorola Razr on her account. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> dear. Okay. So I said, okay, would you like the S3 with the bigger screen and everything? And she says, well, get me a nice case for it. So I'm going to get her a nice white or pink case activate it for her phone line, and see how she reacts to it. Now, we're dealing here with a tiny person, a petite lady who is about five feet when she's kind of standing up on her toes, weighs about 98 pounds. We're talking about a tiny lady with tiny, delicate hands. Beautiful woman, obviously, because I picked the best when I married her many, many years ago. But the key being here is I'm going to give her this phone and say, okay, she knows how to use an iPad, so she understands about tapping and all that, although it's Android. Let's see how she reacts to it and see if she likes it. I'm betting that with a decent case, she'll stick it in her purse and will not let anybody touch it and probably will not find it uncomfortable to use because it's not that much larger Mm -hmm. than an iPhone because there's less screen bezel there.
2: You know, and and the Internet has changed. When Steve Jobs introduced the iPhone originally in January at MacWorld world uh, in 2007, he was touting that it was an internet device, but we've had six years now to grow in our technology. And we've come to realize that people use their mobile device, their smartphone for much more energetic uses than maybe we even envisioned back then. And surfing the browsing, the internet, Doing maps um, and, and running a wide variety of applications uh, ha- has taken on, taken on more scope and energy and technology than we could have possibly envisioned back in 2007. Back when Apple wasn't even thinking about apps, they were thinking about web apps. Remember that? They weren't going to open it up to individual um app developers what
0: a mistake that would have been isn't yes. it fascinating how they learn yes. you can't do it that way and how the world has changed the result of the decision where apple basically changed their mind steve jobs yep. changed yep. his approach and therefore we have the app store john martellaro tell our listeners where they can find more of your stuff
2: I am John Martilero, senior editor for analysis and reviews at The Mac Observer, www.macobserver.com.
0: And he has all these articles. These are thought pieces, you know, not just a couple of sentences of silly pithy comments. Thought pieces always worth a read, whether you agree or disagree. John Martellero, thank you so much for joining us on the Tech Night Owl Live. It's always fun. See you next time the gcn
7: radio network providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio g c
0: n great talk radio starts here
15: It's time to get real.
0: It's time to prepare.
15: Economic collapse. Social unrest. Natural disasters. Government takeover. UN takeover. Are you ready? 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 Get ready at the Social Prepper Trade Show in Dalton, Georgia, June 6th, 7th, and 8th. Three massive days to learn self-reliance and emergency preparedness. Exhibitors ranging from survival, solar, power, food, protection, guns, ammo, disaster preparation products, hunting, and much more. Seminars by Dr. Wallach, Robert Henry, Raymond Blake Hogshead, Trish Deer, Sandy Hall, Rick Austin, Survivor Jane, and more of our nation's experts on survival and preparedness. Don't miss the Social Prepper Prepper Trade Show, June 6th through 8th, Dalton, Georgia. For discount tickets, prize raffle, and info, go to socialprepper.com. Enter code GCN for 50% online ticket discount purchase.
4: The Social Prepper Trade Show,
15: presented in part by GCN.
4: So, a natural disaster strikes and out goes your power. You risk losing stored food in electric freezers and refrigerators. Your options, lose all that expensive food and medication, fire up a noisy gasoline-powered generator, or switch now to a propane or natural gas-powered refrigerator from Ben's Discount Supply. Ben'sDiscountSupply.com has a complete line of propane-powered refrigerators. Freezers in sizes ranging from a small camper cooler size up to a whopping 21-cubic-foot refrigerator freezer or a 22 cubic foot deep freezer in stock and ready to ship anywhere bensdiscountsupply.com also stocks a full line of solar powered appliances to get you completely off the grid check out bensdiscountsupply.com or call 800-771-7702 that's 800-771-7702 or click bensdiscountsupply.com for camping home or bug out location bank on bensdiscountsupply.com can heart
5: and body extract help with other ailments besides heart conditions, high blood pressure, clogged arteries, or unbalanced cholesterol? It did for Karen.
13: I've been using heart and body extract for approximately two weeks. I've had an earwax buildup problem for many years, with over-the-counter stuff not working at all. I had very poor hearing due to this earwax buildup. Well, after two weeks of taking heart and body extract, my earwax buildup almost completely cleared up. Could this be... Be the effect of better body circulation?
5: Heart and Body Extract is an effective, 100% organic nutritional supplement specially formulated to allow your body to heal itself.
13: My hearing is almost completely back to normal. I'm amazed.
5: Order by calling 866-295-5305 or online at hbextract.com. That's 866-295-5305 or hbextract.com. Heart and Body Extract, for long and healthy life
13: what are you listening to the tech night isle live with gene steinberg what's going to happen next you never know
0: we have dennis miller but let me assure you ladies and gentlemen he is not that dennis miller from hollywood he's a different dennis miller but no relationship dennis right
17: No, no, no relationship.
0: Okay. This, Dennis Miller, is the founder and CEO of Snafu Scan. And before we go into anything else, what does Snafu Scan mean?
17: Gene, Snafu stands for situation normal, all fouled up. That's what we named in Snafu Scan.
0: Okay. That's, of course, the official definition from the military.
17: That's right. Yes, that's, that, that's it. It's, it's because, you know, uh, and, the, and the app has a military theme to it because, you know, buying a used car is like going to war. Nobody likes to buy a used car because one way or the other, they feel like they're going to probably get taken advantage of.
0: So this business is designed to help them avoid being taken advantage of. We should point out you are a used car salesperson, right?
17: Uh, actually, a dealer, used car dealer. Yeah, we have a used car business.
0: So basically, this is hard-won, first-hand experience?
17: Absolutely. We started in the car business back in 2003, so it's about 10 years of experience into the app, um, mostly showing the public some of the things that the public isn't normally privileged to, uh, to know.
0: So, okay, this is an app for iOS and Android. Yes, it is.
17: It is free. Uh, it's free to download. Correct. There's an in-app purchase, but it's free to download. Yes. The in-app purchase provides what? Uh, the in-app purchase uh, provides uh, access to the high, the most closely guarded secret in the uh, in the industry, and that's what we pay as dealers at the auction for the inventory. That's the in-app purchase. Now, the free portion is anyone can download the app and use it for free. But what it does is limited to scanning the vehicle VINs and showing you if that vehicle has ever had a recall in its history. And it shows you what the recall is, and it shows you how to get those uh, issues fixed at the dealership for free.
0: Now, in theory, if you buy a car used... Is the dealer forced to tell you if there is a recall, or are they forced to address it, or are you on your own?
17: Gene, you're really on your own. There is no federal or state laws requiring us as car dealers to let a customer know about any you know, uh, recall issue that was uh, issued for the car. And in some cases, it can be quite, uh, quite dangerous, uh, bad airbag, you know, faulty gas pedal. So that's, yes, unfortunately, it's left up to the consumer.
0: Now, just the other day, of course, Chrysler was refusing a request to recall a bunch of cars. But if you look over the history of motor vehicles in the last few years, there have been major recalls from lots of companies. I think Toyota, one of the worst offenders about Possible unintended acceleration problems with the Camry, all that sort of thing. So this is something to be known. Now, the other question I have here, and I'll tell you why I asked the question, is I still get recall notices for a car I haven't had in five years. So normally the first owner, the person who first registers that car, is in the database for the automaker. But the person who buys it used is not in that database unless they voluntarily contact the manufacturer, right?
17: That's exactly right, Gene. Uh, that's kind of a flaw in the system that uh, the only ones they track are the first buyer of the car. They never track the used, uh, used owners. Just as talking about recalls, uh, April 11th, they had a huge recall, actually the third largest recall in U.S. history when four Japanese car manufacturers and um, GM uh, recalled 3.4 million cars for bad airbags. Um, it was the eleventh recall for airbags this year alone
0: you 'd think after all these years they'd have figured out how to make airbags to work without being defective.
17: You certainly would think so, but uh, as a matter of fact, it remains a uh, quite a problem because uh, and you know you never know if it 's going to function and until you really need it so it's it 's really imperative for the driving public to at least know that they're driving a safe car.
0: So you're tapping into the database that keeps track of the cars that have been called or recalled. And this is a way they can check it out and make sure their vehicle is properly serviced. But there's no obligation on the part of the used car salesperson to do anything about it, you'd have to take it back to a regular dealer to get this fixed, right?
17: Yes, that's right. Uh, as a matter of fact, if you were to purchase a car, used car, let's say, and find out that you have a bad airbag or a steering issue, then there was a factory recall issued on that car, you would just normally take it right back to a dealer, uh, manufacturer's dealer, like a franchise dealer, and they would immediately give you a service appointment and they would fix the car for free. Uh, and depending on what type of a, an issue it is, um, even in some cases, give you a loaner car in the meantime.
0: Now, once you go and have the car serviced at this dealer, the manufacturer would then know who you are, right? At that
17: point, yes. Yes, Gene, right.
0: So what do you think here? Is there a survey of anybody of how many cars in the U.S. are out there that have serious recalls, airbags, anything, but people don't know about it?
17: Well, that's uh, the, the, the problem, is that people don't know about it. It's the last thing that they think about. You know, of course, when they come on our lot, you know, they're not thinking about recalls. They're thinking about, you know, how nice the wheels look and does the air conditioner blow cold. But uh, with this recall situation, especially using snafu scan, um, a consumer can come in, just open the app and actually take a picture of the vin barcode in the door and within a second they'll come back with all the information on that vehicle as far as if has it ever had a recall on it issued for anything Um, and that's the free part of the app if they just want to know about the recall they can scan and make unlimited scans and check all their family's cars for recalls and we don't charge anything for that
0: what do you charge for what do you get
17: Okay. Well, when you do the in-app purchase, uh, we call it in the app. It's called the General's version. It's $9.99 for a 30-day subscription. And that entitles you to that when you scan the vehicle, not only will you get the recall information, but it will come up with a figure that will be within a few hundred dollars of what the dealer actually paid for the vehicle at the auction. And this is a highly important thing to know, because if you don't know how much the dealer actually paid for the vehicle, then you have to basically take his word telling you that he paid 10000 at the auction for the vehicle when he only paid 7500
0: Now, this doesn't cover cars that are just traded in.
17: Um, traded into u- news cars, you mean? You buy a car,
0: whether used or new, you trade it in for another car, you bring it to a dealer, a used car dealer, a new car dealer... And you get a certain amount of money for it, oh, but yes. you therefore are not tracking that because it's not done at an auction.
17: Oh, right. I understand what you're saying, but that vehicle is selling at the auction. Whether it's traded into the dealer, let's say you took it in on a trade, is what you're, I assume that's what you're meaning. Um, that vehicle has a certain price at the uh, auctions, say the Mannheim auctions. And uh, by scanning the vehicle, you're going to know how much that, that car is worth at the, at the auction, whether he paid uh, a private person for that or he bought it at the auction. But you're going to know what the dealer cost on that car is. It's a highly important thing to know.
0: Okay. So the dealer is always going to use the auction price when they calculate what they're going to give you on that car?
17: Absolutely. What they're going to do is they're going to use a piece of software that dealers only are allowed to have. Uh-huh. Aha. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're going to scan it with their scanner. And what's going to happen usually is uh, you drive in with a, a 2008 car or whatever, and he's going to scan it. It's, he's going to see that that car is selling for 10000 at the auction. So the first thing he's going to do, is he's going to turn to you and he's going to say, hey, I'll tell you what, I can give you $8,000 for your trade. Now, you don't know that you think that's a great price, but he's making $2,000. He knows that the minute he gets the car, he's going to take it to the auction and make $2,000 on your trade-in.
0: Now, the dealer is going to decide whether to try to resell that car or to take it to an auction. So we assume here that if he's going to auction, it's not the cream of the crop. It's a little bit less.
17: You got it. That's exactly right. If the car's a little rough, it's what we call a little rough, we're going to run it right to the auction. And we're going to make money on it that on the back end.
0: Okay, so let me just tell our listeners, we have Dennis Miller, and he is CEO and founder of Snafu Scan, and we're going to show you how you can avoid being ripped off by your car dealer. We'll be back with more on the Tech Night Out Live. Mm-hmm.
7: America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade.
8: We are the GCN Radio Network. Attack of the Rockoids has been well received by critics and readers alike. It's a -a thrill-a-minute story you'll never forget. A former U.S. military intelligence officer is haunted by intense dreams about a beautiful woman pleading for his help after a terrible battle in outer space.
19: The 9th Annual Health Freedom Expo returns June 7th through June 9th at the Schaumburg Convention Center in Schaumburg, Illinois, featuring over 75 world-renowned doctors, activists, and experts. Meet Dr. Joel Wallach, author of Dead Doctors Don't Lie, actress and activist Daryl Hannah, famed Dr. Patch Adams, woman's health expert Dr. Joan Borosinko, GMO activist Jeffrey Smith, and renowned natural health doctor Dr. Joseph Mercola. Sample delicious, healthy foods, watch award-winning documentaries, attend exciting panel discussions. Discover the latest natural health products and be sure to check out the Expo Hall filled with 200 exhibitors. Don't forget about the new interactive pavilions and receive free screenings. It's all here under one roof for only $20 a day or $45 for the entire three-day weekend. It costs less than a doctor's visit, but hurry, tickets are going fast. For tickets and info, visit HealthFreedomExpo.com. The Health Freedom Expo, your one source for total
9: natural health solutions.
20: It's hard to imagine when things are going reasonably well, just how quickly things can change. But what would it take? Economic collapse? Massive crop failure? Chemical or biological attack? So many situations could find you in the grocery looking to pick up food for your family only to find that the shelves are empty. There's nothing. Don't let that happen. Act today to make sure that if it ever comes to that, you and your family will be provided for. Visit FreezedryGuy.com to look at the wide variety of survival foods available. Freeze-dried foods from the Freeze-Dry Guy store longer, rehydrate faster, are nutritionally superior to, and taste better than any other long-term storage food available. Visit FreezedryGuy.com or call toll-free 866-404-377. 663 freeze dry You never know what's going to
13: happen next while listening to the Tech Night Isle live with Gene
0: Steinberg. We have the other Dennis Miller here, he's the used car guy who's going to tell you how to be sure that when you buy a used car or just trade in the one you have, you don't get ripped off. But a lot of people will consult in trading in the car, they consult like the Blue Book, Kelly Blue Book. So you're saying that's not the price to consult?
17: No, not if you're a consumer. You see, Kelly Blue Book actually has two sets of values. One that they publish on their website for consumers that tells what the manufacturer's suggested price of the vehicle is. And then they have another whole line of figures that we subscribe to as dealers that give us the dealer cost on the, on the, on the car, which, Gene, in a lot of times, there, there's a difference of $5,000, 6000 $10,000 difference between our dealer price from Kelly Blue Book and what D- Kelly says that the vehicle is worth on the market. So Kelly is hiding that information. Kelly is giving two sets of information: one to dealers for a dealer cost, and then they're showing the consumer the consumer retail value. They're not uh, showing them the dealer value. So yes, that's that's true. There's no way Kelly
0: does have have something here called the trade-in value. Mm -hmm. So that's not a real figure. I'm assuming, or we would assume, if we look at Kelly Blue Book, we go online, we look at the trade-in value. This is about what a car dealer will offer to you for a car of that age and condition.
17: But that's, that's not correct. the case? That's correct. That's what they would offer if it's a clean average or rough trade-in value. But that's those are different figures completely, Gene, than what the car is actually selling for at the auction.
0: So basically, they can buy your car for 8000 Knowing that it grabs 10000 at the auction, they can then go ahead and sell it to somebody else for $12,000. They've got $4,000 profit. Correct. Okay. This is almost like a Persian bazaar kind of game here with car dealers. You got to know all these tricks of the trade to be
17: sure what to do. Yes, it's kind of a gauntlet. And that's why people don't really like having to go out and buy a used car. Well, obviously here,
0: if we can ask some logical questions here, when it comes to the recalls, I assume the car dealer doesn't want to know about this because that means they have to undergo more expense. To fix it or to get it fixed. They have to, even if they don't do it themselves, they have to drive it over to an authorized dealer if they're a used car dealer to get all this done. They don't want to bother with that stuff.
17: That's exactly right. And one of the reasons they don't talk about that is because when you're trying to sell somebody a car, you're talking about how what a great stereo system it has and how low miles it has. Oh, and by the way, it has a bad airbag, so you may be killed if you get in an accident. No, you don't want to tell them that. So, uh, you know, car dealers don't—they shy away from even if they do know, which I would say most of them don't know and don't even check.
0: Maybe they just would rather be selectively ignorant. What about something like a Carfax, which supposedly indicates the car's record as far as being damaged in collisions?
17: Okay, well, with Carfax, uh, Carfax is always a, a good thing as far as a vehicle history report goes. Um, has the car ever been in an accident? That's basically what you're going to get from Carfax or a similar product called AutoCheck. Um, most of the uh, accidents that the car is in is reported to Carfax. However, sometimes that they're not. Sometimes the car is fixed by a shade tree mechanic, and, of course, That never makes it to the database. But by and large, it's always a good idea to get a Carfax or an auto check. And one of the other reasons why is because it records the odometer settings at different times during the car's history. So you can see if the car dealer has ever rolled the miles back on the car illegally.
0: Now, I was under the impression with all this digital stuff going on, it's not so easy to roll back an odometer. Do they still do it?
17: Absolutely. They have computers that do it
0: now. So my car has 25,000 miles on it right now, but maybe the person who buys it, if I were to trade it in tomorrow, would buy a car with 19,000 miles on it.
17: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it can definitely, there's a chip in there, and that chip can be manipulated, yes. But
0: isn't it also true you can pretty much hack any electronic feature on that car?
17: Yes, it's true. Yeah, it's true. However, you know, you know, it can it's it's more difficult to to roll the miles back on a digital uh, uh vehicle than it is of course if it was a uh the regular one, but it can be done, but if you but the good thing about Carfax and AutoCheck is that you see what the car's miles were recorded at you know, six months ago when it was in for an inspection. And then if you see on the lot that the miles is 6,000 miles less than what's on the Carfax, you know that something has happened and it's not a good idea to buy that car. Technically, that's illegal. It's a federal crime.
0: But that doesn't stop, I guess, some dealers from doing it anyway. Why are they they, they doing this? Is it all about greed? I mean, these people live in the community, the car salespeople, the people on the dealerships. They live in the community. They have all these community events. They sponsor the Little League games and everything else. They sponsor the Boy Scouts. But when you go in there to buy a new car, a used car, they're looking at you like a potential victim.
17: (laughs) Yes, you you got it pretty much right on the head there, Gene. Um, I will say, though, that personally from my experience, um, if I'm at the auction and I'm buying vehicles for my uh, business – I try not to buy vehicles that are from other independent dealers such as myself. Uh, I try to buy cars that come from franchise dealerships because even though there are some franchises that do play games, I would say, by and large, uh, they're pretty above board and pretty honest when it comes to selling cars and not doing funny things that we'll talk about. But that mostly comes from small, independent dealers. So to, for the buyer should be aware when they're dealing with a small, independent car dealer.
0: Okay. So one of the funny things that a dealer might do to a car other than the odometer to make it seem like it's in better condition than it really is.
17: Okay, well, it's a great question, Gene. I should also mention that inside uh, the Snafu Scan app, the uh, we have a section in there that's called uh, Dealer Tricks and Tips and the, the Bunker. And there's um, about 19 different uh, tricks that the dealers do that the customers don't know anything about. And it shows you what to do. In case of that, just make sure that you don't get taken by any of these uh, ploys that the, that the dealers do. And let me give you an example of one.
0: Well, I think um, the one we were mentioning here is the things that they do with a used car to spruce it right. up. What do they
17: do? Right. Okay, so let's, let's do the engine light. Dealers will see that the check engine light is on at the dealer at the auction. Well, they will buy the car anyway. And then what they usually do will take the car back to the lot, and they'll have their mechanic disable the light bulb in the um, check engine light compartment. And what that does is when the car started, the check engine light does not illuminate, uh, and it doesn't give the uh, consumer any potential warning that there could be a problem with the, the vehicle. Now, when the check engine light is illuminated, there's usually two reasons why that happens. Number one is an O2 sensor, and number two is a bad catalytic converter. Now, this
0: is, of course, part of your emission control settings, and this is something, by the way, if it doesn't meet those requirements, in many states, the car will not pass registration.
17: Absolutely, not to mention
0: anything else that might go wrong.
17: That's that's true, Gene. Yes, absolutely, because uh, that's a very expensive uh, thing to get fixed. The catalytic converter for most cars are you know three to six hundred dollars, and the O two sensors are, are very expensive as well. So the dealers will just disable the light. And they know that uh, consumers don't know how to check that. But I'm going to give your listeners an easy way to check that right now. What happens is when you turn on a vehicle, any vehicle, when you turn the key to start, but you don't actually start the engine, all of the panel lights on the dashboard should illuminate for a few seconds. And this is the way you check and see if the engine light has been removed, the light bulb has been removed from the check engine light. Just check it. Make sure that all the lights illuminate and then go ahead and start the car.
0: If not, you go back to the dealer.
17: Uh, yeah, if not, you go back to the dealer. And If you really want that particular vehicle, what I would do as a dealer is I would tell the dealer, look, I've got plenty of time. I want you to go in there and take the dashboard, replace the light, show me that the light is working, and then we'll take it for a test drive.
0: Now, in theory, most used car dealers have some sort of warranty.
17: Um, in I can theory. tell you, them, Yeah. Most states, though, it's a lot of, a lot of states are buyer. a uh, spot as is.
0: So basically, you're on your own. You spend $15,000 for a used car, a used Honda that maybe sold for $30,000 when new. Mm-hmm. You take it out of that showroom, you're stuck if something goes wrong. Unless the well, dealer has some kind of warranty, but even then, if they have a warranty, how do you know they're going to apply or follow the terms of that warranty, or if they're even any good?
17: Well, there's two things. Uh, number one, the warranty that most dealers offer are third-party warranties that the consumer buys extra in, in addition to the car. But most, uh, like, for instance, Texas is, a, is an as-is state. So you buy the car the minute you drive it off the lot. If the engine falls out, it's on you. So
0: Don't buy a car in Texas, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> because this is all Governor Perry's fault. We're getting political here. It has to be his fault. I'm kidding. We've got Dennis Miller. He's founder and CEO of Snafu Scan. That's a fascinating product that we're talking about now to keep you from being ripped off by your car dealer. Unfortunate we have to put up with that, but we do, I guess. More to come on the other side of the Tech Night Nighthound Live.
12: Or go to my website, TaxHelpOnline.com. That's TaxHelpOnline.com.
2: Welcome back to Get Night Out Live, where you never know what's going to happen next. And now, it's Uncle Gene. Yeah, it's him.
0: Okay, we have Dennis Miller, not the other one, but the guy who's founder and CEO of Snafu Scan. And he has this little app for iOS and Android where you can avoid basically being ripped off by the car dealer. Okay, we're talking about the warranties. So theoretically in Texas, you buy a car, it's as is, even if they advertise a warranty, they say 30 days, 60 days, 90 days.
17: They can warranty that for 30 days, 60 days or 90 days. But what they're doing is they're buying a third-party warranty. And they're either maybe the dealer is paying for it. But that's really not the practice usually, say, in a state like Texas. I mean, it's, it's as is. The It's on the window. It says buy as is. So anytime you have anything go wrong, you're really stuck uh, in an as is situation. However, with uh, franchises, you know, franchise may offer uh, their own mechanic shop, might offer a, a 30-day warranty or, or such. So it's always up to the re- reputation of the dealer you're dealing with. Keep that in mind.
0: Okay, so in addition to the check engine light, what else what might they do to make that car seem better than it really is?
17: Well, if they buy a car with a bad head gasket, they, there's an additive that uh, you can put in as a dealer that lasts for about about a week and a half, and everything is fine. And then about a week and a half later, you start seeing the uh, temperature going up, and uh, you find out that you've got a bad head gasket, and you have to replace it. So, uh, what does an- that
0: cost to replace a head gasket on a normal car? I'm thinking of a mid price car like a Honda or a Toyota, not a Mercedes, because then, you know, whatever you buy to replace in that Mercedes will be $2,000. Mm-hmm.
17: Yeah, a regular car, five, six years old, maybe a Japanese type car. You're talking a head gasket can cost you anywhere from $800 to $1,500. Ouch. It's expensive. It's a very expensive repair. And, uh, you know, a dealer, if he's not, doesn't have scruples, he will put an additive in there and keep that engine temperature down. And then a week later, you bring it back and tell him, hey, he's going to tell you, hey, it has got a broken head gasket. So $800, $1,000.
0: Boy, you're going to love doing business with him again. The thing I kind of worry about when dealers pull that stuff, and that is they're thinking of the immediate profit. Someone comes in, they buy a car, they make as much as they can. They don't think that maybe that person is going to tell somebody else, you know, this guy ripped me off. Or they might need another car for another member of the family. They'll come back three or four years from now, they'll buy another car. They don't think about future business. They think about making that hit now.
17: Mm-hmm. And uh, they, they think about making the hit now. And uh, they, they don't really... You know, that's just kind of the mentality of most dealers. Uh, it's not like uh, customer service and I want your business, I want your kids to buy cars. Unfortunately, that's the way the business is it's running.
0: So if you want to use car, then would it be better to go to a franchise dealer only because at least there's a manufacturer behind them as opposed to an independent dealer?
17: Well, as far as I'm concerned, I would say... Probably consumer-wise, yes, because most franchises are a bit more reputable than than your independents because they do sponsor the the community and they sell new cars as well as used cars, so they need to keep a, a good face in the community, so... Yes, I would. I would have to say that you know I would recommend uh, that a consumer, if they can and they find a car they like, you know, purchase it from a reputable uh, franchise dealer. However, there are you know they have to be able to protect themselves and have to know what their car is worth because uh, I will say that a franchise dealer is still going to try and make three or four thousand dollars on their trade if you try and bring it in there and you don't know how much your car is worth.
0: Now, one thing we talked about before we did the show, and I mentioned this, something you know about and we should tell our listeners about, that when you go in there to buy a new car, say, for example, or just a used car, you already have a car that you want to trade or sell. Unless you pay cash, even, you're basically engaged in three transactions. There is selling the used car, there is buying the new car, so you're talking about two separate negotiations, and then even financing the car is the third transaction, and maybe there'll be a fourth one because they'll try to pack some junk onto it, like get an extra burglar alarm or, or some kind of sealant which may not be necessary or some special mm-hmm. kind of paint. So mm-hmm. you have all these extra transactions. You just want to buy a car and you've got to go through each step. And very briefly, because we only have a few minutes left, can you define what we have to do here? We know about the used car. So you're going to try to, say, use your app, get the maximum amount that you can for the used car. What about the new car? What do you do to make sure you're getting the best price?
17: Well, the first thing that I would recommend is, of course, get Snafu scanned and have uh, scan the vehicle to know before you drive on the lot how much your vehicle is bringing at the auction because that's the key figure they're going to be looking at. And then don't say anything to the dealer. Just scan it and then you know how much your car is worth and then ask them to appraise it and when they come back and they tell you that you saw that your vehicle is worth 10000 and they tell you, hey, we're going to give you $8,000 for your trade, then you're going to show them snafu scan and say, listen, I know that this vehicle, you're going to run it to the auction and make $2,000 on the back end. So, number one, let's get this straight. I'm getting $10,000 what snafu scan says my car's worth. I want that for the amount of trade in. Now, the second thing you talked about was the manufacturer's uh, retail price. Uh, That's real easy to take care of. Just ask them for a copy of the manufacturer's suggested retail price and um, tell them that you will pay $500 above the sticker price. You know, $500 is the most that you're going to pay over over their dealer cost.
0: And how do you Uh, prime out that dealer cost? Because they've got all these crazy things going on like holdbacks and incentives. You know, you sell that car, they get... A quick fifteen hundred or three thousand dollars in the back end. How do you know about that stuff?
17: Mm-hmm. It's it's basically all there on the uh, on the paperwork for the where the dealer has. So you you actually see if there's any incentive or, uh, back, cash back to the dealer. You take that off. Then you take the uh, manufacturer's retail price and you tell them, look, I'm going to pay five hundred dollars above your cost without the incentives. And um, if they're at the end of the month, which is the best time to buy a new car is near the end of the month, uh, they're going to give it to you at $500 over their real cost. So now you've, done, you've accomplished two things. You've got what the car's worth, how worth, and you're only paying 500 say, over the sticker price. Yeah, yeah, the dealer price.
0: Yeah, over the dealer price. Okay. Now, the other thing to bear in mind here is if the dealer says, I'm not going to show you that, that's proprietary. You just go to another dealer.
17: That's right. And a lot of franchise dealers will show you the the, the dealer cost on the car. That's not a problem because they're trying to really make money on your trade as well. Okay. Then the
0: financing, they can still make money on that too because when they sell the paper to a third-party company, whether the dealer's own, the manufacturer's own financing arm or someone else, they're packing away a little extra profit there.
17: Absolutely Just remember one thing, Gene, to tell your listeners, the F&I guy is not your best friend. Um, He gets paid for packing on things like you were talking about, uh, rust sealant protection and all that stuff. Um, Tell him you don't need any of the extras, and what is the rate, what's the best rate that you can get me as far as financing on this vehicle? When he comes back to you, usually in 15 minutes, because all franchisers are a member of dealer track, and what that does is they put your financials into the system, and they take bids on them. And what happens in the next 5 to 15 minutes, they'll get like 20, 30 hits, and they're going to look for uh, the, the one that's going to give you an approval. Now, once they get the approval rate, they're going to give you a finance, uh, finance amount, uh, percentage. What you need to do as a buyer is you need to see, tell them you want to see what the dealer track screen is telling you as far as the, pri- as far as the uh, finance uh, percentage. Because what happens is usually they'll tack on an extra quarter of a percent, an extra half a percent, extra percent. That could mean thousands of dollars to you in the long run.
0: Now, I understand we're not going to begrudge the dealer from making a profit. If he says, look, I'll make a few hundred, whatever it is from this over the term of your loan, that's for me to run the showroom. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll say, all right, let's come to some agreement. Let's do something. You make some money. I don't mind that he makes money fairly and squarely as long as I'm getting a good price. Tell our listeners where they can find more of your stuff.
17: Uh, well, they, actually, they can go to snafuscan.com. It's the website where you can download. Uh, you can down, you know, go take it to the App Store or Android, Google Play to download the app. And um, there's some interesting FAQs there that will tell you a little bit of things. But I would highly recommend you know, purchasing the app because it, it will save you thousands of dollars on your next new car.
0: What can I say? I'm going to get myself a copy. Dennis Miller, thanks for joining us on the Tech Night Out Live. Thank you, Gene. Appreciate having me.
3: of buying gold and silver. Again, the global elite have plans for your money and it doesn't include you. So call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130. And I will send you a booklet with 10 reasons why gold and silver could be right for you. Again, don't get caught with money in your account when the next bank bailout hits. Call me, Gary Cooper, at 1-800-686-2237, extension 130 it's
20: hard to imagine when things are going reasonably well just how quickly things can change but what would it take economic collapse massive crop failure chemical or biological attack so many situations could find you in the grocery looking to pick up food for your family only to find that the shelves are empty there's nothing don't let that happen Act today to make sure that if it ever comes to that, you and your family will be provided for. Visit FreezeDryGuy.com to look at the wide variety of survival foods available. Freeze-dried foods from the Freeze-Dry Guy store longer, rehydrate faster, are nutritionally superior to, and taste better than any other long-term storage food available. Visit FreezeDryGuy.com or call toll-free 866-404-377. 63.
5: Your home alarm works after an intruder is inside your home, but real home security begins before intruders enter. Burglaries and home invasions are at an all-time high, and crime is skyrocketing in rural and suburban areas. 85% of break-ins are through a door, and police response is often greater than 20 minutes. You can't afford to wait that long. Stop burglars with police-tested and recommended Easy Armor from Armor Concepts. Easy Armor keeps intruders out, it's barely visible, and installs easily. Easy Armor reinforces a doors weak points, comes in three colors, and is guaranteed to stop kick-ins. Get Easy Armor now and get peace of mind. Order by calling 888-58-ARMOR. That's 888-582-7667. Or go to easyarmor.net. Spelled E-Z-A-R-M-O-R dot net. Special offer only available to GCN listeners. Ask about it when you call for your Easy Armor today from Armor Concepts. Ultimate door security made easy.
0: have Joe Wilcox of Beta News joining us. And even though a lot of the expectations are for tech people to talk about Apple's Worldwide Developer Conference, I'm not going to ask Joe about that just yet, a little bit later. Let's start. (laughs) Yeah, Let's let's change everything around, confuse everybody. That's where it stands. All right. The last time you were on the show a few months back, you were in the process of switching your mobile phone service from AT&T to T-Mobile.
20: How'd that go?
1: Uh, well, uh, pretty good. Well, pretty well is the is the right way to, to say it. I had to negotiate a little bit with AT and T with regard regards to the uh, early termination fees. They discounted it, but we still we still paid some money. And uh, I asked for a discount because we really can't make phone calls uh, from from where I live. Uh, the uh, signal just breaks up, and people complain that they you know can't hear. So. That that was one reason to switch, and the other is to save money. Uh, I have my first full phone bill now with with T-Mobile, and that's with carrying the charge uh, monthly charge for four phones. It was hundred and seventy-two dollars. That's compared to two hundred and ninety-five as a normal bill for uh, AT&T. Quite a difference.
0: Before we go on, let me ask you here. You can tell me the details if you want. What did AT&T want from you in an early termination fee, and what did you negotiate? And was it based strictly on poor service? Now, what did they want, and what did you get them down to? I think our listeners would like to know this, especially if they had problems with the service.
1: Okay, so you don't have a lot of room to negotiate. Uh, Basically, uh, they can can knock off, a customer uh, representative can knock off about $200 off Whatever that fee is, uh, at their discretion. Uh, beyond that, their system just won't allow it. Uh, the way the e- ETFs work, you start off with a with about a I think it's three hundred and twenty five dollars is what they charge, uh, and then it goes down by you know X dollars a month divided by twenty four. So uh, my different contracts were all at we had you know five different lines and they were all at different states of uh, of a reduced. Price, and so I don't want to go into the to the actual amount, but let's just say I, we still paid out hundreds of dollars to AT and T in the end. Through two different negotiations, uh, I was able to to cut the total AT the ETF by about one third.
0: Okay, so hundreds of dollars. So it's going to take you a little while to make up the difference, even though you're paying what more than a hundred dollars less a month.
1: That's correct.
0: All right, let's go back to the service. With AT&T, frequent dropouts, particularly in your home or around your home?
1: Well, uh, we, we went through different stages. In the in the uh, early days of uh, iPhone, the calls would drop frequently, and uh, that became a much more persistent problem after iPhone 4 released. But then the drop calls stopped. Then uh, not long uh, around uh, the iPhone 5 uh, release, we started having all kinds of signal problems where we could hear uh, most of everyone clearly on our side but they would complain that they could only hear every other word and i experienced that myself calling home and it's a it's a big problem everyone in my apartment complex on A&T, AT&T they all complain you see people going out on the street walking down the block trying to get a signal uh, whereas now in the apartment we have crystal clear call from T-Mobile Then they have Wi-Fi calling as well. Uh, If there's no signal, it'll it'll kick in and and make it the phone call over Wi-Fi, just like, I guess, using Skype. I mean, it's just built in.
0: Now, one feature that T-Mobile advertised was this HD voice. So if you have an iPhone 5 or one of the later smartphones from Samsung, like a Galaxy S4, you can talk to each other using HD voice and get better quality. Have you had a chance to test that?
1: ht voice is amazing uh, my father-in-law who's 91 and my daughter uh, both have iphone 5s my wife and i uh, have the htc1 which supports this so both all the phones support ht voice and it's amazing so clear um j- just uh, <laughs> uh, you can just very very clear you don't hear any background noise you just hear the voice of the per- person talking and uh it's it's hard to describe the qualitative difference. It's just so remarkable.
0: AT&T is supposedly going to have that later this year. Now, let me just tell you in comparison here, I have AT&T. Mm-hmm. I'm going to make that decision when the iPhone 5S or whatever it's going to be called comes out this fall. At that point, my early termination fees won't be so high. So I figure I could work out a deal by then. However, performance for the most part with AT&T is pretty decent where I am. I live near mm-hmm. Phoenix, They've had upgrades in the Phoenix area. That's not a problem. So I guess part of the issue here is if you're going to make a switch, even over and above pricing, consider the quality you have now. Of course, if you're on Verizon, the NSA is getting the call logs. But that that is probably true for the rest. This is just one subpoena that became public. It's probably all of it, isn't it? So, I mean, they know what you're doing, too. They know what I'm doing. If you ever see the TV series Person of
1: Interest Joe? Yes, I have. Okay. It certainly feel, it certainly feels like that, doesn't it?
0: They know what we're doing. I mean, we can't hide it. <laughs> I mean, I've been online for 100 years, so you know, that's how it goes. Okay, so you're happy with T-Mobile. So, what advice would you give to people out there if they want to make a switch of this sort?
1: It's really interesting looking at the at the at the business models. I mean, in one sense, it's very similar in another way. It's very different. You know, AT and T subscribes to the traditional, you know, subsidy model where you get your phone at a discount, and then you're locked into a contract for, typically, for 24 months. With T-Mobile, you're paying the full cost of the phone, which you can do upfront, or you can do in payments over 24 months. So, in the case of the um, uh, of the iPhone, actually, I, let me not use the iPhone as an example because I think they raised the price. It had been $99, and now it's more, and actually I don't know what that uh, it is unless you do unless you happen to know off the top of your head. Okay, so um, in the case of the HTC One, uh, it's uh, $99 up front, and then you pay $20 a month for, uh, for tr- 24 months, or you can pay the full cost of the phone. So just to point out here,
0: to point out here, there's no early termination fee, but you've got to pay for the phone regardless. You're out for that phone. If you correct
1: your, your, your early termination fee of sorts is what you owe on the phone. I Um, suppose then you could always
0: sell the phone and use that to pay off your loan.
1: Correct. But when you get to the end of the 24 months, your phone bill goes down because you no longer have the the cost of the phone to pay for. But AT&T, when your contract is done, the subsidy cost is still built in. You're still paying that higher fee.
0: I suppose one could use that as logic to get rid of an early termination fee. For example, my wife has a Motorola Razr on her account. That's three, four years old, long since paid it off, paid off the contract. And I said, you've gotten a free ride here. Give me a break. Joe Wilcox at Beta News joining us. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live.
7: The GCN Radio Network. Providing the world with hard-hitting talk radio. GCN.
0: Great talk radio starts here folks, you'll want to hear this. No matter what size your business, people don't take you seriously unless you have a professional-looking website. You can empower your business with a stunning online presence, and it's free. Join over 30 million people who have built their websites with Wix. Once again, it's completely free. It requires absolutely no design or coding skills. Want to know more? Check out Wix.com. That's W-I-X.
19: Radio. Wouldn't it be nice to have one product that replaces more than 10, saving you space, time, and money? HempUSA.org has a complete full-spectrum vitamin-mineral detox formulation called Micro Plant Powder Gold. Micro Plant Powder Gold contains 101 vitamins, minerals, probiotics, and iodine, has a 100-year shelf life, and is a perfect addition to any storage shelter. Make Micro Plant Powder Gold your choice. Call 888-910-4367 or visit HempUSA.org today.
11: We are the people Got a simple question for you. Can you sell? Yes? Okay, can you
5: sell the intangible? If yes, and you'd like to work 9 to 5, Monday through Friday, with no overtime, no weekends, if you're passionate about not closing sales, but about opening relationships, if you truly have a desire to serve global clients who need your advertising expertise, and you're local to the Twin Cities and Burnsville, are hardworking, self-driven, with experience in sales, marketing, or advertising, are personable and a whiz on the phone, GCN wants to talk with you right now. GCN the, end, the Genesis Communications Network is one of the largest independent talk radio networks in the world, and we're hiring right now. We offer benefits and an excellent commission structure. Experience preferred, but we'll train the right person. Is that you? Submit your resume today to advertise at gcnlive.com. Again, that's advertise at gcnlive.com. Come work with the Genesis Communications Network, an equal opportunity employer.
13: What's going to happen next? Well, here's the Tech Night Owl, live with Gene Steinberg.
0: Okay, so the one thing, of course, is the price structure. Now, do you think the other mobile phone companies are going to do this too, which is to sell you the phone at full price, and simply have you pay it out on time. It's like getting a loan for your mobile phone. Is that used anywhere else around the world?
1: Uh, well, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could argue that the, uh, the the whole prepaid model is very similar already. And so you could argue that what uh, what T-Mobile is really doing is extending the T-Mobile is extending the prepaid concept to postpaid. So that would be the closest comparison that I that I could think of.
0: With prepay what you do is you buy the phone up front. But even then you might buy it with your credit card so over the next 2 or 3 years you're still paying it off on time.
1: Except if you do the the T-Mobile method, they are carrying the paper. There's no interest. No interest.
0: Right, they're carrying the paper without interest. Correct. Now that's a fast question I had which some people might ask. Does this mean that T-Mobile's credit standards are higher because of this?
1: I don't know. <laughs> I, I possibly, I mean, I'd always thought of uh, the standards as being somewhat lower uh, because of, you know, it, it, T-Mobile has been for a long time a, uh, a, a lower cost carrier. I mean, its its plans have always been a little bit less than the others.
0: So they cater Um, to people with less money.
1: Well, you could say it that way, I guess.
0: (laughs) Or who want to say, well, obviously now you're a happy camper. You've got T-Mobile. You're getting good reception. You're willing to absorb a few hundred dollars over a period of a few months to dump AT&T. So you're happy. But the key here is that in every city, it's a different story, isn't it?
1: Um, What do you, how do you mean?
0: Well, you know, you're getting... Good service with T-Mobile, lousy service with AT&T. I haven't tried T-Mobile here, but AT&T right. has given me decent service. So the only reason for me to switch would be a better
1: deal. And, and in one respect, you probably won't get as good a, good a service. AT&T uh, on the data side has LTE deployed most everywhere. Uh, uh, T-Mobile is not. T-Mobile is still in the process of rolling out its uh, LTE network. Now it's HSPA network is generally faster than AT&T's uh because like here in San Diego, you know it's HSPA plus for T-Mobile, but there's no plus on uh on AT&T. So it's a difference between uh a maximum of say 3 maybe 4 MIPS down on AT&T versus 10 15 on T-Mobile.
0: Okay, I'm in one of those lucky seven cities that have (laughs) LTE from T-Mobile. The Phoenix area is one of them. The other is Las Vegas. So if we ever move to Las Vegas, you know, if you want to go on the gambling tables and you have your T-Mobile, you could communicate with your bank faster, (laughs) I guess. Okay, so we understand also that over time, T-Mobile will be adding LTE to other cities. So maybe the best thing is don't rush to do anything. Unless you have to have a new mobile phone tomorrow, wait and see how T-Mobile shakes out, whether they're bringing LTE to your city if you're going to buy a phone with LTE. Just take your time. Don't rush.
1: Well, again, it does cost a lot less. I mean, I can't can't emphasize that enough. The the uh, simple choice plan, uh, it's something like I think it's $50 for the first phone, $30 for the second phone, and then $10 for each phone after. That's for unlimited... Uh, unlimited text, talk, and web. Uh, The web is only high speed through the first 500 uh, megabytes, but then you can add uh, 2.5 gigabytes with tethering for another $10 a month. So it turns out to be fairly affordable uh, compared to to the AT&T plans. Like I said, my bill right now is $120 less uh, per month, which is just shocking to me. And that's carrying the cost of, uh, of phones that are financed through T-Mobile.
0: All right. Well, that is something that we'll have to see how well T-Mobile does in picking up some traction on the marketplace now that yeah. it is competing with the same equipment as everybody else. Let's look to some other topics. One subject that's being discussed a lot right now is the expectations for Windows 8.1. If you couldn't stand Windows 8... Is Microsoft going to fix the problems with Windows 8.1? What are the differences?
1: <laughs> well, that's a tough one. I mean, it's uh, seriously, it's a very, it's a very tough situation for Microsoft. Uh, we're looking at some really nasty numbers in terms of um, you know PC shipments. Uh, they're just not as high uh, recently as well. Actually, they've been down for some time. Uh, 2011 was a record. Year 2012 was nearly a record year, and the first quarter of this year uh, beat all records in terms of, of uh, decline. I'm sorry, when I say record, I mean record declines. In other words, PC shipments are way, way, way down. Um, in the uh, first quarter, according to IDC, the PC shipments were down thir- almost 14% globally, nearly 13% in the United States, over in Europe, Middle East, and Africa. Uh, Even uh, in Asia Pacific, they were down almost uh, 13%. In many emerging markets where there was an expectation that uh, PCs would continue to sell well, that's not happening. We're seeing uh, a lot of folks going from uh, regular feature phones to smartphones to tablets rather than to PCs. And the, the big question, of course, is, you know, to ask why and, and how does Windows 8 fit into that? I think Microsoft made some very good decisions around touch. was a smart thing to do uh, in terms of, you know, the future and where user interfaces are going uh, around, um, you know, convenience and, and immediacy and intimacy. The problem is there's a lot of legacy baggage that Windows 8 brings along with it and i'm talking about the desktop and and the whole jarring experience going from one user experience to the other then there's the the um the actual desktop uh touch experience where the the better user interface is optimized for touch it's fun to use with touch it can be a very good experience overall um but if you're on a computer with a mouse and keyboard it's not such a good experience at all so, you know, these are, these are things that are not easily overcome, and I don't expect Microsoft to to easily uh, resolve them uh, uh, through this update.
0: All right. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. The update's going to have some kind of sort of start menu. And I understand one of the most popular pieces of third-party software for Windows 8 is a utility, and there are probably more than one, that allows you to restore a start menu. So there's supposed to be a start menu in Windows 8.1. Is it like the one you had in Windows 7?
1: Um, I mean, Microsoft really, really isn't going backwards that much. Most of the real customization is around the start screen, allowing you to do more with that, to resize the tiles, to have some backgrounds. and Some of those are even even kind of fluid and dynamic, and they remind me of... uh, what you might see uh, actually on an on an Android, try uh, start screen. Uh, there's a lot more, uh, you know, customization, better multitasking. I think the big big thing is going to be search. There's a lot going on with search uh, across the uh, the web and uh, your SkyDrive and your you know local storage, your network, whatever. Those are all all great enhancements, but they still don't resolve the fundamental problem of working between two motifs, the desktop and the modern modern UI, which used to be called Metro. So you have two motifs that function very differently. One is optimized for touch, the other one for mouse and keyboard, and the major applications, even from Microsoft, don't really support the touch user interface.
0: Joe Wilcox of Beta News is joining us. We're dissecting What we might expect from Windows 8.1, due out later this year. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Out Live.
7: America's number one source for independent talk radio for over a decade.
8: We are the GCN Radio Network.
21: To thank you for being a loyal listener. We have a limited time freebie offer for you. Claim your free heirloom tomato seeds. Just pay shipping right now at 123freeseeds.com. These aren't ordinary seeds. These are heirloom, non-genetically modified super seeds that are open pollinated and can be grown, harvested and replanted endlessly these survival seeds are actually more valuable than gold in a crisis. Go to 123FreeSeeds.com and you can get an airtight storage packet of 150 super seeds free while supplies last to say thank you for being a loyal listener. First come, first served. Just cover shipping. Go to 123FreeSeeds.com now to see if your free heirloom seeds are still available. That's 123FreeSeeds.com.
22: Hey, everybody. Jason Lewis here with another great idea from JasonLewisTeam.com. Now, how would you like an energy drink that's actually good for you? That's right, one that not only gives you an afternoon pick-me-up, but that's loaded with the most important antioxidants for reducing the damage from stress. It's called Pollen Burst, and it's a natural burst of energy that lasts for hours. Now, most energy drinks rely on a massive dose of caffeine, sugar, or even vitamin B. Pollen Burst takes a more balanced approach, and that's why I like it. I also love the fact that Pollen Burst has plenty of vitamin D and green tea extract. This is the best energy drink I've ever tried. So trust me, you'll not only like it better than the others, you'll love the way it's individually packaged for freshness as well. They've got these on-the-go stick packs. They're great. Pollen Burst. It's available at jasonlewisteam.com or simply call 1-855-310-TEAM. For a natural burst of energy, it's Pollen Burst at jasonlewisteam.com or 1-855-310-TEAM.
13: Live with Gene Steinberg. It's the Tech Night Owl. Because you never know what's going to happen next.
0: We have Joe Wilcox of Beta News joining us. I'm Gene Steinberg. You're in the Tech Night Owl live. So we have Windows 8.1 coming out. And you were talking before we did the break about the two experiences. We have the modern UI for touch. We have the desktop for a more traditional Windows 7-like user interface. And the fact is that Microsoft's key apps are still for the desktop, right?
1: Right. Office 2013, uh, there is no native version for modern UI. You go back to the desktop. So there's this switching back and forth, which is a which is a, a jarring experience. Uh, it makes for when you design a user interface, you want to pull the complexity away from the user. You want to make things you know simple and straightforward and uniform, and you don't get that uh, with, uh, with Windows 8 or, uh, as I think we're going to see in a few weeks, 8.1. In fact, I'd argue that uh, the user experience uh, when displacing the traditional desktops is actually worse than with using, you know, Windows Seven. So that's that's not a good thing.
0: Now, supposedly, one thing that Microsoft might do is add a default boot to desktop feature. Is that correct?
1: I will see. <laughs> uh, we'll see when uh, Microsoft releases the software uh, during its developer conference in a few weeks.
0: Okay, so you're about to go into some other aspects of this. One thing that worries me, though, and I want to get to one more topic before you go. One thing that worries me here is that Microsoft wants to push everybody to the modern UI, the interface formerly known as Metro. But they can't even give you Office in that environment. So what incentive does any developer have with a major sprawling application suite like Adobe or Quark to go to modern UI if Microsoft doesn't do it?
1: Well, they don't have a lot of incentive to, to go there. And if you look at the apps, a lot of them are smaller apps, or they're the kind that you would see on, on tablets or smartphones. They're not really uh, the kind of robust uh, desktop, ta- desktop apps that, that uh, people are used to. There's also issues around the utility of touch. I'm a big fan of touch as a user interface. I think um, uh, Apple has really shown uh, just uh, how how important it is. How you know the, the touch is an extension of you. You know the most natural user interface is you, and you know the finger, <laughs> you know is part of part of you. Um, and vo- As is voice and, and any of the voice commands and voice activation and uh, voice search, those kind of things as well, uh, have a lot of future potential on all kinds of devices. But uh, where Microsoft's problem is that is the utility of touch in the, in the current PC model as we know it. On a tablet, modern UI is, is very functional with the exception of you need more apps for it. But when you get it on a laptop with touch, there's there are a lot of problems, and they're not just they're not just Windows problems. They're operating system problems in general. It's my experience in using you know touchscreen laptops. Gorilla arm is a reality. Your arm gets really sore going from uh, the keyboard uh, to touch the screen. It's very different. Than holding a, uh, a a tablet in your hands. Also, there's a lot of wasted movement when you're using a keyboard and a trackpad. Most of the movement uh, takes place in a very lo- local area, a very small area. But when you end, when you have a touch screen which you must reach up for, then your hand is leaving that area. So you're creating, you know, more work, more more energy, and of course, there's that gorilla arm syndrome where your arm hurts from from repeatedly pointing upward.
0: Well, when Henry Cavill, who's playing Superman and Man of Steel, was doing his exercises to get those big arms for Superman, he mm-hmm. did not do that sort of exercise, which is touching the screen and the keyboard <laughs> and back and forth. He wasn't engaged in that kind of touch at all. I understand he said that in interviews. It had nothing to do with Windows 8. They didn't stick him there with Windows <laughs> 8, trying to work it day and night and eating 5,000 calories so he could become Superman. So if you want to become the Man of Steel, that's not the way to do it.
1: <laughs> Cute, but yeah, I get the point. It's it's our, and I hope the the listeners get the point about this u- utility problem that, that I think is very specific, you know, to laptops in the position of the screen. But that's
0: the reason and- why Apple doesn't give you the touch screen on their notebooks because they figure it's going to be ergonomically bad, and one of the reasons why the earlier tablets didn't work is because that was the design practice they set up. It's not like what you did on Star Trek Next Generation, which is closer of course, to what Apple did with the iPad and what you get with tablets now. You know, they were looking at these tablets as traditional notebooks with a touchscreen added.
1: Right. It's very different. It's a very different experience holding the tablet or where the, the motion is uh, down versus across and up.
0: Well, then maybe Microsoft needs to rethink the entire thing from beginning to end, because it's not as if the public is really embracing their solution. Maybe if you emphasized everything in the Windows 8 modern UI, you did everything there, forgot the desktop, that's not appropriate, and therefore encourage developers who want to have new Windows apps to go strictly to the tiled interface, maybe that would solve the problem. You wouldn't have to deal with that. You'd use them just like you use an iPad.
1: Well, there's also the issue there. There's also the possibility of going beyond, which is, which is incorporating more of you into the user interface. And then that's where voice can, can really make a difference. You know, at what point are you, do we reach the Star Trek universe where you're talking to your computer, where you're doing dictation, you're instead of writing a document by typing it, you're dictating that document. You're doing voice commands for, for search. You're giving instruct, uh, telling the, the, the computer to do, to do this or that, uh, uh, maybe set up an appointment in your calendar or whatever. Uh, a lot of that, by the way, I can do right now on my Android smartphone or tablet. Uh, Google is really pushing this whole Star Trek like thing hard and uh, Microsoft is as well, but, uh, I'd say Google is, is right now a few steps ahead of everybody. The question is, you know, will it stay that way?
0: And of course, Apple, we expect they're going to enhance Siri. So, but the point being that we have these voice-driven features that we've seen with computers on and off for years, but now becoming more focused. So where is the computer interface of 2020 and beyond? Maybe that's what <laughs> Microsoft needs to look at rather than trying to embrace the path and providing the worst of both worlds. As you say, an inferior version to the Windows 7 desktop and maybe an unfinished concept for their Metro interface or their modern UI. Where do they go from there? Even now, Apple is poised, we hear, and we don't really have time to talk about because it's going to be known next week anyway, poised to do some possibly major changes with the user interface for iOS 7, And for OS 10.9, which is they make the interface simpler, more predictable. A lot of the excesses, skewomorphism I hate that word, will be history. (laughs) We'll have to see what kind of announcements they get. And then maybe we'll bring Joe on and have his assessments of what Apple has wrought and whether what they do... Is really going to move them into the next part of this decade. We'll have to see. Joe Wilcox, where do we find more of your stuff?
1: You can go to uh, uh, Beta News, and I guess it's betanews.com author Joe Wilcox. Just go to betanews.com.
0: Search for him. You'll find him. He's all over the place over there. And plus, they have a lot of correspondence there. We have some very intriguing articles about a lot of tech subjects. You want to check them out. If you want to check us out, we are known as Tech Night Owl. We're known as Tech Night Owl on twitter so you can find us there send us a tweet follow us and maybe we'll follow you you can also find gene steinberg that's me on facebook i haven't set up a special thing there for the tech night out live maybe i should do it i have to work with one of our listeners to see how best to do it we also have another radio show about ufos and things that go bump in the night and maybe we'll talk about the computers of the future or what they do on another planet i don't know We'll be talking about a guy who was a former police officer who collects reports of UFOs in the U.K. That's at Paracast.com. Once again, that's at Paracast.com. But this week on the Tech Night Owl Live, Jill Wilcox, thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. The Tech Night Owl
15: Live is a copyrighted presentation of Making the Impossible Incorporated, We'll be back next week. Same bad time, same bad channel.